Good morning. As we begin this first Sunday at Advent, why don't we take some time to pray before our Heavenly Father. And of course, you know, prayer is not so much about speaking as it is listening. So let's learn to listen this morning. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come here and we gather here to worship because you alone are worthy. So free us from our distractions of this week and of the weeks to come. Free us from all the idols that we've said and just grab our attention constantly. And help us, Lord, just to come and sit and listen. To set aside our schedules and our must-dos. And realize that ultimately what you have to say to us is the most important thing that we need to hear. We know our world's busy. We know it's full of beauty, and it's also full of evil because we as broken people make wrong choices. We know there's disease in this world, and there's other complications to life that are out of our control. And this morning, Lord, we lift up many people to you, um, some that have ended their life this week. May you be with friends and family and those that ex experience the loss. Think of others that have, are going through illnesses and accidents this past week. We think of others still that were brought into this world just this week and are struggling to keep their life. All these things, it's amazing that you watch and you, you are the Lord over all these things. So as we gather here this morning, we thank you for this place that we can gather in freedom. We thank you that it is only rain outside and not ice. We thank you for this body, the people that are here this morning that together you will use to make a difference in this world. So lead us into your word this morning. As we celebrate this season, may people see the hope that's in us and ask us, what makes you so different? And may we be ready to talk about Jesus who is the author and finish of our faith. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, Amen. So when's the last time you heard or said something like this? You're not listening to me. <laughs> We've been on both ends of that, haven't we? Ever feel like God's not listening? Yeah, we've been there too, haven't we? But have you ever considered from God's perspective of what he thinks and feels when you and I do not listen. I read an article this past week. The title was The Must Listen to Songs of the Decade. I thought to myself, who decides that? There's another article, The Must Listen to People of the Decade. Here's what I've noticed. God has not made that list. So who are you listening to and what are you listening to and where is our attention being directed? We have so much information and noise being directed to and at us, both external and internal. 
There's internal voices that sometimes get so noisy, we can't even hear ourselves think. They talk about noise pollution today. Hearing loss, both physically but also metaphorically, where you can have so much noise in your life that you can't hear others and even yourself. And often it's the kind of noise we grow accustomed to without thinking. I mean, we attune to certain sounds. I was raised on a farm, and we had black Angus, about 250 head of cattle. And there was a herd that would come through every once in a while that we could call them in from the pasture with one word. We'd go out to the fence, call, and they'd all come running. Think about how a small child, when they hear their parents' voice, what do they do? Wherever they're sitting, they go, whoa, their attention is drawn there. People, they have their ears attuned to their cell phones and rings they put in. And it's fascinating to me that no matter who they're with, when that cell phone goes off, you watch their body motion, their eyes and their head turn. When I was in Canada, I did some work for Juvie Hall in the city of Barrie, and we worked with city kids. And I took them out into the northern wilderness. It was the top end of Algonquin Park for anybody that knows geography. And the only way to get back in is to pack in with backpacks and canoes and portage from lake to lake. And we get out there, and these city kids that were raised in Toronto all their life and heard street noise and city noise, we get out there in the evening, and they are absolutely terrified at the strange noises because they never heard them before. You know, Jesus says this in John chapter 20. I mean, John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, go back to that premise I talked about at the beginning. Can you imagine what it's like for God to try to get our attention, to get us to listen, so that we know the voice of the good shepherd? So many distractions, so many other things demand our attention. And also, part of our humanity is we have this tendency to interrupt God. Have you ever noticed that? We disrupt the conversation. And yet, throughout Scripture, there's this constant theme that we are called to listen. We are called to listen. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, listen. And this word comes up over and over. I literally could simply read passages all morning long about God saying, listen, listen, listen. Listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. And God over and over again says, listen, the reason I speak with you is for your benefit. It's for your joy. It's for your peace. And the reason I want you to listen is because things will go better. You know, the story of Job had these horrible tragedies happen. And for the longest time, God was silent. And then in Job 33, verse 1, here's what he said. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. And what I found frustrating from Job 33 on is that God never explains why this happened. 
He just talks about who he is and both the macro and the micro plans that he has for Job. But you have to discern first and foremost, is God worth listening to? So the evidence in Scripture is clear. God is constantly saying, listen, listen, listen. And if you were part of the nation of Israel, you would hear that over and over again, and the prophets would speak that. And then it came to Malachi. And when Malachi's finished, God stops speaking until Jesus shows up. They often call this the 400 silent years. Does not mean that God did not speak. It just means that through his writings and through the prophet, that stopped being recorded. In fact, you may say today that we are in a period of 2,000 years of silence because we have the written word and there's nothing added to it, just like he said in Deuteronomy. And in spite of people trying to add and take away, it's our baseline. God uses his word to speak through our lives, but always in cooperation with his word. I mean, here's what he said in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets because that's what the Pharisees accused him of. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's a little Hebrew marking, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And again, that talks about God's purpose in this world. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So at the end of Malachi, we see Israel back in Palestine after the Babylonian captivity, which Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied about. They lived under Persia. Esther and Nehemiah talked about these. The Aaronic priests are still doing their thing. The royal line of David followed in evil days, and people knew who the rightful successor was, but they didn't listen, and there was no king on the throne. So Palestine became a puppet state of Persia. Enter the New Testament. In 400 years, many things changed. Rome was now the dominant power. The central power had shifted from the east to the west. Palestine was still a puppet state, and there was a king. It wasn't the descendant of Jacob. It was the descendant of Esau, and his name was Herod the Great. And the priests were no longer the line of Aaron, but the priests now were hired and used for political patronage. Kind of sounds like some stuff going on in America today, doesn't it? But during these 400 years, 400, 400, four different parties, and again, these parties all heard God saying things. But you have a little word there, differently. Emerge at the end when Jesus came into the scene. Here were the four parties. They're the Pharisees. I call these people, we think we know more than we really do. You see, they knew what the Messiah would look like, act like, and talk like, and what he would actually accomplish when he came. And that's why they could not accept Christ as the Messiah. And yet they were the people's favorite. They had strict absolution from politics. They were micromanagers of the law. They told you what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where you could do it. And they had standards for everything 
dress, what you said, what you did. That was one of the parties. Then there's the Sadducees. There's actually very little known about them. Some people call them the university crowd. They had very little influence over most people. And three main aspects of disagreement with the Pharisees were the resurrection. They didn't think there was any. This is all there is in life. Angels and spirits, they said there was none. All you see is what we have. And fate and free will, that was a choice. There was no God up there kind of directing some incredible plan where he brings everything into his purpose. Then there are the Essenes. They're called people, the scrolls. These are the people you often hear about living out in the desert. There's no mention of them in the New Testament. They're a separate community. They shun personal wealth, ownership, money, and women. And what's fascinating is it was an all-boys club. Now, one would think they would understand that they would eventually die out. <laughs> but they devoted themselves to good works, and they had everything in common. Then there was the zealots. These were the religion people in camo. They were activists. They were rebels. They refused to pay taxes. Their main saying was the only good Roman was a dead one. And theologically, they agreed with the Pharisees, but they liked to take things into their own hands. They had a passion for Judaism, but God alone was their leader, not Caesar, who claimed to be God at that point. Now, what I find interesting is they all listened to the same God. They all had the same Old Testament, but they came out with very different conclusions. And may I dare suggest that we should be careful how we listen and to whom we listen. Because here's the reality. Many people claim to speak for God, and they do not. They only speak a version of God they desire to hear. So they are the center of the universe, not God. They're the ones that are going to direct the information about God, not God himself. There's something that we talk about today called critical thinking, and that's not being criticizing people, but it's the ability to analyze the facts and to listen to all truth. And our culture is not very good at this today. Now, psychologists tell you there's different reasons for that. They say we learn to react instead of respond. We lead with our emotions instead of facts. We, we settle for fiction instead of truth. And it's just easier to go with what makes sense to us. And there's plenty of people who will join in our delusions. <laughs> Doesn't matter. If you want to believe in Area 51 with the aliens, they say that 24% of Americans believe that they've been abducted by aliens. So you can have a large group of people to really believe anything you want them to believe. Now let's talk about Christmas and what you believe. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, here's what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, what's the fullness of time? Well, it's from the beginning of creation right up to the point of Jesus. It includes everything the prophets talked about and includes what's often called the 400 silent years. The word fullness often is used as the word being pregnant, about ready to give birth. So when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. 
What this means is God had been bringing the events of history into place. From the time prophets stopped writing to new writers. From everything that happened down through the years that we just have not biblical records of, but historical records of. And there's been some interesting events during those 400 years. I mean, it's around 435 B.C. that Malachi stopped writing, and the center of the world began to shift. Up to this time was Babylon. It moved to Persia. That was predicted by Daniel. When Persia was at the pinnacle of its power, Macedonia, Greece, began to have its influence. And so we have historical figures like Philip of Macedonia, and under his leadership, he built an empire and became their ruler. His son made history, and it's probably the one we know the best. His name was Alexander the Great, predicted by Daniel. He was 20 years old when he completely destroyed the Persian Empire. So literally, he took over the world when he was 20. A year later, he was making his way to Egypt. He wanted to destroy Jerusalem. And some unusual events happened where he met some priests They opened up the book of Daniel. He was shocked at how Daniel predicted all these things. And instead of destroying Jerusalem as Daniel predicted, he protected it. He saved Jerusalem. He died at age 33. He was basically bored. And they said he was an alcoholic. His empire was torn because there was no heir. His son had been murdered. So four generals took over the empire. And what's fascinating is these generals did their own things, but it was during this time a young rebel priest fell in love and married a Samaritan woman, which was a no-no. And so they went off and started their own thing, and he built a temple on Mount Gerizim. We read about that at where? In John chapter 4. It becomes a rival temple to Jerusalem. Enter Antiochus the Great, whose son was Antiochus Epiphanes. And if you know history... Antiochus Epiphany was the most vicious and violent persecutor of the Jews. Again, Daniel predicted. Now, this guy was so evil and so vile that a rumor got back to Jerusalem that Antiochus was killed in battle. And hearing that he was killed, what do they do? They throw a big party. (laughs) And while they're throwing this big party that he's dead, who comes back? Antiochus. He came to Jerusalem, he was angry, and so he desecrated the Holy of Holies. He killed 40,000 Jews in three days. He burned the scrolls, he took a pig, sacrificed it, sprinkled it over the temple, and again, Daniel said the sanctuary would be polluted for six and a half years. And after six and a half years, Judas Maccabees cleansed the temple. And do you know what day that was? December 25th. So you see the date of December 25th has some long historical roots that go way back before we can even imagine, before Christ was born. Some thought Judas Maccabeus was the Messiah. And there was peace for a time, and Rome began to rise in power. But under Herod the Great, it became a place of hopelessness. And the restlessness was worldwide, and again, the air of expectancy, finally the Messiah would come. It's kind of like us thinking, man, Jesus, can you come back soon? And what's amazing is history bears the signature of God. And so we reread Galatians 4, 4, 
when the time had fully come. Now, here's what we have to realize today. He's doing the same thing today he did during the 400 years between the Testaments. And here's the point I want to make. God is shaping history to culminate his purposes. And just because we can't see it or hear it because we're living in it doesn't mean that he's not. He is shaping history. And we need to learn to listen to God's voice. Let's look at some take-homes if we desire to listen for God. What does that really mean specifically? Here's the first. God is not frustrated by history, present or past, but directs all things to culminate according to his purposes. Amen? Now, we get frustrated. If you listen to politics today, you will get frustrated. <laughs> Why do we get frustrated? Because we are little control freaks. Now, this doesn't mean that God is some emotionalist being that sits there and directs everything void of who we are. We know when Jesus was here, and it's our best glimpse of who God is, he wept over a friend who dies. He wept over Jerusalem knowing what was about to transpire. But failing to view life from a macro, macro means the large, it's the overcomprehensive. For a Christian, it means transcendent. Just not this world, but the world to come. Failing to view life from a macro viewpoint in all of history, past, present, and future, things could appear to be what they are not. And if we only look at the micro look, what happened to us today or this week or this month, it moves us down a path of hopelessness, doesn't it? I mean, last week I talked about living in a fallen world, and that impacts us. That was true for Joseph of Mary. And I have to think, because of Herod's paranoia, they had to flee to Egypt. And think about them bearing the weight of children being slaughtered due to the birth of their son, Jesus. I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? But if we're going to listen to God, we have to understand that he's not frustrated by history, present or past, but directs all things to culminate according to his purpose. Number two, listening first requires that we value the one who is speaking. We listen to the voices of those we value. And if we're going to listen to God, we have to value his voice. Now, value is not like this. Well, I'm going to listen to God because I'm going to get this and that. Value has to do with worth. Value has to understand that he loves us, that he is for us, that he is with us. And we listen because we know he loves us. We have to value his son, Jesus Christ. It's called Christocentric thinking. But listening first requires that we value the one who is speaking. Third, listening means we do what we already know. Now, parents have used this phrase as long as I've known parents, talking to their kids, and sometimes their spouses. They use this phrase, selective listening. You only listen to me when you want to listen. And how many times do we already know what we should be doing, but we fail to follow through? Why? It's because we really don't value what God has to say. This is called having a high view of Scripture. I know we love to pick and choose what we want to follow, and this is good over here, but I just don't know about this. But if you're going to really listen, you have to do what we already know, because like parents, we say, we're not going to give you step number two if you don't do step number first, 
One first. Four. Listening requires that we understand the possibility of being wrong. Let me explain this. All throughout the New Testament, Christ, when he spoke to the religious leaders, said something like this. You say, but I say. You say, but I say. And if you go into a conversation with an already established version of truth, that will be your filter. And when approaching God's truth, we need to say in humility, here's what I believe, but I could be wrong. That changes everything. If you walk into a situation knowing you're right and you refuse to change, you won't listen. So in humility, we need to humbly bow before God saying, you know, I could be wrong in this. And we see this evidence all through Scripture. Think about when the Jews were supposed to take the message to the Gentiles. Think about the treatment of those that were physically disabled and the lepers. Jesus turned all this upside down. What I'm saying is this. There are things we have to unlearn. There are lies that we that, that live within us that have very, very deep roots. And number five, listening means we position ourselves with a heart of gratitude. Listening is an issue of the heart. It means we close our mouths and open up our hearts. It requires silence. And the strength of a listening heart is gratitude. We listen to things and to people we are grateful for and to. And if we're going to understand God, who God is and what he has done and is doing, we must have gratitude in our hearts. In Romans chapter 1, and this goes back to that we have a tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator, Paul writes these words, for although they knew God, they did not honor him, they didn't value him, didn't raise him to the level he should be, or did they give thanks to him, a heart issue. But they became futile in their thinking, which means they got a lot of things wrong. They were unwilling to admit that. Their foolish hearts were darkened. A lot of their emotions went dark. Claiming to be wise, they thought they were pretty smart. They became fools. They weren't as smart as they thought they were. And exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That simply means they chose to worship the creation rather than the creator going to call the worship team up. We're going to close with a song. And as you think about proclaiming Christmas, as you think about telling people about Christmas, let me encourage you during this season to listen. To listen to what God has to say. He is not silent. To listen what through his word and through his spirit is telling you how to navigate this holiday season. And as culture bombards you with noise and all its ide ideology and all of its consumerism, listen to what God has to say. And then do what you know you should do. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we worship.